Thanks, worship team. I think you should like just praise the Lord for the worship team. God's good. You guys look pretty good today. I mean, for people that look like you look. That's, that was harsh. That's kind of a sideways insult kind of thing. Sorry about that. Uh, before I get started, I tell you what, I, I was in prayer this morning, and uh, you can not like what I say. It's okay. <laughs> but somebody, uh, maybe several somebody in this room, I hope I'm one of them. You are on the verge of breakthrough this morning, and I am praying that you get it, okay? So whatever it is, I don't know. But if you are, if you are sitting there this morning and you are facing something really difficult, you are staged for a breakthrough, and uh, so we, we want you to get that, okay? So we are talking about this old idea, this old path in this series, a word called repentance. Not a popular word today, but one that the church needs to learn, that Christians need to know. Because repentance is about changing the way we think and by changing the way we think, thereby changing the way we believe. And when we change the way we believe, we change the way we live. And so repentance is about coming up to a higher way of thinking, looking at things from a different perspective and learning things from a different perspective. So last week we talked about Jesus Christ and how He came. And when He came, He created, learned, and installed the kingdom. And that every believer that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and their, as their Savior, that's repented of their sins and turned to Him, that believer is called to live from a new kingdom. A new kingdom means that we live under a different set of rules. We live under a different king. We live from a different place than this one. Now, that changes everything. Say amen. amen. Changes everything. And so we are talking today about how that Jesus taught us a way to live. You know, there's a passage in the Bible that struck me out of the NLT where it calls the, the, the Christians, the early Christians, the followers of the way. When I first read that expression, I thought to myself, what was the way? And I remember, I think I actually spent years wondering, what is the way? Why is this so hard to figure out? What's, what is the way that Christians are supposed to live? And then I one day had one of those epiphanies and I realized how dumb I was. You ever have a, a what, what, is that an epiphany or, a, or something else? I don't know. But I realized I, I didn't, that Jesus, that was all he talked about was the way. And I kind of, life is that way. You know, when I, my, I got married over 32 years ago, coming up on, is this year 33? Wow. I probably should get you something. <laughs> Write that down. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. This is the tinfoil anniversary? Okay, good deal. Origami tinfoil coming up. Now, when we, we got married, now I grew up in a home, my mom's name is Betty, Betty Ann, because I grew up in the South, and you have two names in the South, Betty Ann. You're like, Michael, what's your middle name? I ain't telling. <laughs> so there. <sighs> so um, Betty Ann had a, a system. So in our house, this one little thing, she folded clothes that you could see. So if you wore it, it got folded. If if you were on the outside, but if you couldn't see it, it didn't get folded. It got put in a drawer. That was how I grew up. And in my uh, naive thinking, when I got married, I thought every family did it that way. And turns out I married a woman. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Married a woman. So, I mean, I, we got married and I found out pretty quickly that everything, everything gets folded. And not just folded in a particular way. <laughs> now, how many of you guys know that the first 10 years of our marriage, this was a very difficult transition for me? 
There was, there was lots of discussions about folding. Why are we talking about folding again? It's clean. But anyway, so no one can see it. So, yeah, I learned that there is a way to do things. Now, Jesus Christ also taught us a way, and that's what we're talking about today, what the way is. And he said this to his disciples to kind of give you a biblical foundation for what I'm teaching. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Do you hear this? You must give up your own way. You can't just follow, say you're following Jesus and do it my way. Your Frank Sinatra song ain't going to work for you, okay? And so you have to do it his way. You take up your cross and you follow Jesus Christ because Jesus lived from a different kingdom which has a different ruler and a different set of rules and, and things work differently from that kingdom, okay? So this is, this is fundamental basic Christianity. This is living in the kingdom, R.T. Kendall said this, it really struck me, so I wanted to share it with you. What it means to live in the kingdom, this was R.T. Kendall's definition. He says that we live in the kingdom of heaven or God when we live under the rule of the ungrieved spirit in a believer's life. Now, I won't go into what it means to grieve the spirit today, but I just like that definition and I wanted to share it with you in Ephesians 4.30 is the verse you can check out in regard to that. Paul talked about something. Paul before he became a Christian, or actually in, in Acts chapter 22 where he's giving this testimony, he, he has this line that I think is interesting. He said, I persecuted the followers of the way. Now when I read that, I just that's compelling because there were these people that followed Jesus that lived so uniquely that it was obvious that they were followers of Jesus. Something about they, the way they lived caused them to be persecuted because it was obvious that they were followers of the way. And I believe that the early church taught the way to live, the way to practically live out the gospel, the person, and the character of Jesus Christ. In fact, I believe in Thessalonians, that's what Paul's alluding to. He says, finally, dear brothers and sisters, these are on your screen, or they're in the Version app, which I probably need to show you how to use one day, but not today, sorry. We urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. Now catch this next line. As we have taught you. So they taught the way. You live this way already. We encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from all sexual sin. I left that last phrase in there just for good measure. So, you know, if you're feeling awkward, drive it home, okay? So what's the way? Is it a big secret? I mean, do you have to like cut your wrist and, and shake hands with somebody or blow your nose? How do you find out what the way is? You know, and, and so that's what we're getting at today. And, I, and here's the thing. This is super simple. I am not going to be hitting you with any rock, rocket science today like I could do that. I'm, I can barely do water and dirt science, but you know, I'm not going to be hitting you with that. But even though it's simple, sometimes the most simple things are the most challenging things. And so we're going to get into the way Jesus lived, the way he thought, and the way he helped, okay? And how that those things are for us and they teach us. So let's jump right in. Matthew 5, verse 3. You may know them as the Beatitudes. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. 
for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Now, I want to argue with you, or not, I don't want to argue with you, but I want to argue at this case here, that these ideas that he presents in these first three verses are foundational to the way Jesus thought about life. The way you think, the way you believe is going to drive everything else. In fact, I heard a, a comment a couple weeks ago that's just really staggered me. He says, we need to stop teaching people how to act like Jesus. For as long as they act like Jesus, it'll just be an act. We need to teach people how to believe like Jesus. And then their actions will line up with what Jesus believed. And I think that is a profound idea. And so as we drive into this idea of, of how Jesus thought, let's begin with that concept of the poor that are going to receive the, the kingdom, this what is Jesus talking about? What is the way? What was foundational to Jesus' thinking? And so I would recommend, or what my idea is that Jesus' way was that Jesus was confident and dependent. Jesus was confident and dependent. What does that mean? Well, our way is not humble. As Westerners, as human beings, humility is not our favorite thing. We really like pride. That's what we like. We like to think that we are in charge of our destiny. We like to believe that we are self-made people, that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we can cowboy up, that we don't need anybody and nothing to be all that we can be. And every year you get older, God will chip away at that stupid idea, and you will realize that you cannot be all of those things in a bag of chips. I don't know where the bag of chips came from we don't believe we need anything is the point that is not how jesus thought and jesus was teaching us to think in a way that we had needs in fact that we had desperate needs that's how jesus christ thought if you don't think that you need god you're in a terrible place even as a Christian, if you think you've got it figured out and you're in a place now where, yes, I have this Christian thing going and I'm smoothly riding along, you're mistaken. Jesus said this to a church in Laodicea. He said in Revelation 3.17, he said, I'm rich. Uh, he says, you say. He said, this is the heart of the people. He says, you say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Man, I think this is the heart of a lot of people that we are in a place where we have met and supplied all of our needs, and we like that place. But here's the condemnation, the calling up, I would rather say, that Jesus had for them. He says, you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Don't let what you know keep you from what you need. Don't let what you know keep you from what you need. Jesus lived in a way that he was entirely dependent upon God and it gave him supreme and perfect confidence. Most of us in this room are living under anxiety and fear because of our pride. We're walking through life saying, I can handle it, I can do it, but our heart does not believe it. You can lie to your head. There are entire libraries of books that will teach you how to lie to your head. But you can't lie to your heart. It knows the truth. Amen. It knows the truth. 
And so we need to, we need to come off of that high horse, that independence, that cowboy up. Did that hurt Wyoming? We need to get off of that. And we need to realize that we need God. There are intellectuals out there that accuse Christianity of using God as a crutch. And I'm here to tell you, they are wrong. God is our very breath and heartbeat. We need Him for a lot more than a crutch. I don't want God to help me limp through life. I need God to help me thrive and express His power and love in the world in which I live. That's what it means to be poor. It means I turn to God for everything I need, and then that gives me perfect confidence. No longer do I rely upon my own strength, my own ideas, my own creativity. Now I'm plugged into a kingdom where stuff is created all the time rather than plugged into a kingdom where things are dissipating and vanishing all the time. Does that make sense? So Jesus lived confident and dependent. That's the way of Christianity, depending upon God. All right, the next verse he goes on. Um, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This week I was in a a meeting with some other pastors in our community. There's a, the chambers trying to do an interfaith thing to try and, and, and bring faith into the community. And so I'm trying to be a part of that the best that I can. And it was an interesting conversation. We were talking about uh, suicide prevention and some things that we might be able to do and ways that we could support families. But the, the subject moved into the idea of grief. And I told them a lesson I had learned in the last year about grief, and it's this. It's pretty simple. Westerners, probably people around the world, we don't grieve anymore. And that's terrible. What do I mean? We escape. We run. We go to the next thing. We lose something or something and we fill our schedule as full as we can fill it so we never have to think about it again. And you know what the tragedy is of that? Because we never grieve, we can never release the sadness. We can never move on. So we get stuck in those moments. Jesus didn't live that way. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus realized that there would be losses in life. And he realized that God was a comforter to help us through those losses. And it set him free. We we struggle with that, though. I understand. So of our eight children, at one time, we had the most we ever had at home at one time was seven. Thank God. And it's interesting to watch the dynamics in a large family. I don't know if any of you guys come from a large family or not, but it's kind of fun to watch the dynamics, you know, because you have seven sons and you want them to, to be able to share, but you also want them to learn to take care of things that are their own. So it was kind of funny. We would give them things that were their own, that were their responsibility, and they would have to share them with their brothers and so on. Well, here's the weird thing that happened that kind of taught me a lot about human nature. God teaches me a lot through through my family. Often it's my own failings, but nonetheless. So they would get up to that age where they, you know, need to move out, nine or ten. And um, <laughs> just kidding. That's a joke. That was wishful thinking on my part. But <clears throat> 18, 19, 20, whenever they were ready to head out, you know. And we would go, it'd be time for them to move, you know, and they would have all this junk. Now, I'm not I know you're thinking, well, he's just, you means by junk, it's their stuff. No, I mean, they had stuff that was literally garbage that they would not let go of 
just because it was theirs. I have one son, I won't mention his name or the item, and for fear his brothers will listen to it and torment him, which really wouldn't bother me that much, but I still won't do it. He had this item, and, and it, was, it, was, it was junk. It just needed to be thrown away. But to him, it was the most valuable possession a human being had ever possessed in his life. And it was just like so wonderful, and it was worth all of this money. That's what he would, he would tell his brothers. And they're like, did you need to throw that away? And I learned from my kids that we in this kingdom, the earthly one, we struggle letting things go. Here's why. In the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the enemy, the kingdom of the earth, all the resources are dwindling. Things are becoming less and less. There is no actual abundance in this kingdom. There's only decline. And so Jesus taught us to live from a kingdom where you could take losses, receive comfort, and let things go. That's the power of grief, by the way. And I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the most powerful things to grieve is an expectation. Many of you are living under the power of sadness right now because you refuse to grieve an expectation that will never be. My wife and I just went through a a situation, I won't give you any details, just recently, that she she had an expectation. And it it was rightly deserved. I mean, it's something that should have been not out of line to expect. But the expectation died. It it wasn't going to happen. For one of the few times in my my tenure as a husband, I had the wisdom this one time. I probably didn't before and probably never will again, but this one time I had the wisdom to stand next to her and validate everything she was going through and support her. And what I ended up doing, I see in hindsight, was I helped her grieve an expectation that was lost. So guys, Jesus said, hey, I live in a way, Jesus lived in a way where losses can happen because we have a comforter. Our Father God who comes into us through the Holy Spirit who comforts us and empowers us to let it go. That's powerful. That's how believers live. We can take the losses, guys. We don't need everything to work out. We don't need all our expectations to be met. We need the Comforter to help us through the losses and get us to a new day. Amen? So Jesus thought from a place of dependence upon God. He thought from a place where mourning was vital and could set you free. And then He also thought from a place where humility worked with responsibility. God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the earth. God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the earth. What? does that mean? Well, when you inherit something, you become the owner of that thing. You have ownership in that thing. And in ownership comes responsibility. So here Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are humble and take responsibility. Okay? Now, I live in a world today that's very, 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 did I say very? Concerned with its rights. Okay? And never, ever talks about its responsibilities so let me talk to you for a minute here okay one you don't have a right that someone did not take the responsibility to give to you okay but when you have a right you have a responsibility now because you have the right for example i might wax a little bit political today 
don't worry, I will offend everyone equally. You don't have a thing to worry about. I'll make everybody mad. That's, I, usually that's my goal. Upset them all that way. No one, never mind. Anyway, so, but anyway, so for example, you have a right to vote. Well, if you take that just as a right and don't accept your responsibility, then you will vote uninformed. You will just pick whoever speaks the loudest or makes the most noise or whoever agrees with your preconceived ideas. But our responsibility now that we have the right is to be informed and to, to actually, I don't know, read a thing or two. Crazy idea, but, you know, just an idea, okay? So the thing is, with rights come responsibility. Now, Jesus teaches us that the humble will inherit the earth. And so he uses the word there, King James uses the word meek, several translations use the word meek. So what is he really talking about? So I'm going to give you a great picture. Moses teaches us about this. The Bible says in Numbers 13, I mean 12.3, says, Now Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on the earth. Now that word humble, uh, translated from, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Chaldean. So they translated it into Greek about the time of Jesus, when Jesus was on the earth, okay? It was in Greek. The same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used in the Greek writing of the New Testament here. Blessed are the, hum blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek. Same word. So when it says blessed are the humble, we see that Moses is, is accredited with being the most humble man on earth at the time that he lived, okay? Why? Why is he credited with that? Actually, it's because of something that happened in Numbers 14. And I'm going to read you the synopsis of it in Psalms 106. I know you're like, I don't know if, I understand, if I'm following you. Trust me, I'll get you there. It's going to be okay. All right? What happened was the people of Israel were stupid. Uh, they weren't stupid like you. They were a special kind of stupid. Not that you're ever a special kind of stupid. But anyway, they were stupid and they ticked God off. And God was ready to wipe them off the face of the earth and start again with Moses. So here's Moses sitting on an amazing opportunity, if you think about it. He's about to be the man in Hebrew. The man. No, that's not really true either. But he's, he's about to be the new Israel. He, this possibility could happen. But in Psalms 106, this is what happened. God said he would destroy Israel. But Moses, the most humble man on earth, his chosen one stepped between the Lord and the people. And he begged him to turn from his anger and not destroy them. Often people make a terrible connection between the word meekness and weakness. And we need to not make that because here you see fearless humility. This man stood between the wrath of God and the nation of Israel and begged God to spare their lives. Even offered his own life forfeit that he would spare their lives in the Numbers passage. And so guys, this is what humility is. It's taking responsibility for things. It's standing in the gap for people. It's serving rather than being served. This is the way. This is how Christians do it. We don't stand on our platforms and criticize the world. I know you're going, oh, a lot of Christians do that. Well, they're wrong. That's not the way. The way is we love the world and we stand in the gap between God and the world. Actually, what we are doing is just what Paul told us to do in Corinthians. We stand and plead with the world, come back to God. That is the Christian challenge. That's what we are on this earth to do. That is controlled strength. 
That's what humility is, okay? So these are the way that Jesus thought. He thought came from a place of humility and responsibility, of losses with comfort, and of, and of humility, poorness, poverty, and dependence, okay? A confidence and dependence. That's the way he thought. Now, those thoughts moved into something else. So we'll jump into Matthew 5, 6 through 8. <coughs> Excuse me. God blesses those who thung, hunger, thunger. There you go, I'm changing it up today. Hunger, thirst, one word, thunger. All right. Those who hunger and thirst for justice, many translations use the word righteousness. So I'm going to use those words interchangeably, justice and righteousness. Hunger for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Guys, this is the way Jesus lived. He thought a certain series of ways that produced a certain actions in his life. And so he lived from a place where he pursued God's will over his own will. He hungered and thirsted for God's righteousness to be present in the world. God's justice. What does that mean? What is this justice about? Well, does he mean that he wants uh, bad things to go away, crime to stop, uh, uh, things that abuse the world, wars, genocide, all those things? Is, is, it, is it about that kind of justice? Well, certainly God wants those things to end. But we come back to that when Jesus talks about peacemakers in the end. But that's not what this justice is about. This is not social justice that Jesus is implying and telling us to hunger and thirst for. Is it imputed righteousness? And I believe that the whole Sermon on the Mount, which is what this is the introduction to, is based upon the idea of imputed righteousness. And what is that? That's a big word, Michael. Imputed righteousness is a simple reality that when you realize that you are a sinner and that your sins condemn you and that you realize that Jesus Christ died for those sins and they can be covered in the blood and you surrender to Him as your Lord and Savior and you're forgiven of those sins, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed or given to you so that before God, you are righteous. That is imputed righteousness, okay? You're like, I'm not sure I follow you. Well, I'm telling you, as a Christian, you need it, all right? It's really, really important. But that's not what Jesus is talking about either. What is it talking about, Michael? You guys always ask the best questions. <laughs> always. James nails it to the wall, James chapter 1, verse 21. Get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives, and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it is the power to save your souls. I don't have time to break down the significance of the word souls there, but that's a very important word, but that's not part of today's message. So if you're ready for your own word study, dig into the word soul in that verse in James 1.21. This is about, this hungering and thirsting is about practical, expressed, manifest righteousness in your life. That's what he's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That was Jesus' life. He, he lived for the will of God to be expressed in everything that he did. That's righteousness. Righteousness is not your will of what is good. I should clarify. Not your idea of what is right and good. Because the honest truth is, as much as I love you, you have no clue what's truly right and good. But God does know what's right and good. And so Jesus pursued God's righteousness in his life, practically expressed in his life. So these ideas of humility and dependence and comfort produced a life that pursued and hungered and thirsted for righteousness. I love the story. I like some of the old stories of pastors and missionaries. 
And Robert Murray McChain has a, an interesting story. He was a young man. He died at 29. He died very young. But he was known for his passion for God. He prayed that God would send revival to his church in town for years. And then when God did send revival, he was out of town at the time because that's how God rolls, man. He wants to make sure that he gets the credit and not you. But anyway, so he's out of town. But when he comes back, he's so excited that God's on the movie, he doesn't care who gets the credit. And so he gets behind and supports the revival efforts. Now, he, he died soon thereafter. He died at a young age of 29. The story's told that a, a, a neighboring minister came to his church and wanted to know the secret to his spiritual power. And one of the elders that served with him came to this gentleman, this pastor from another town, and said, I'll show you. And he took him to McChain's study. And he said, sit at that desk and bend your head and cry and pound that desk and cry out to God, God, make me a holy man. And then he took him to the pulpit. And in those days, pulpits were elevated above the crowd and they walked up to the pulpit. He said, you stand in that pulpit and you bow your head and you water that wood with your tears and you cry out to God, God, make me a holy man. That's the secret to our pastor's power. It's this hunger for the righteousness of God in his own life. A.W. Tozer once wrote, you can have as much of God as you want. You can have as much of God as you want. And I agree with A.W. Tozer because I find that my problem is not God's willingness to give me Himself. My problem is my willingness to choose God over the distractions in my life. And so guys, the way that Jesus taught us to live was a way that hungered and thirsted after righteousness. If that creates a conflict in you, good. That needs to be so. We need to struggle with the life Jesus teaches us. Don't walk away mad. Wrestle with the truth of Scripture and it will change you. It will make you powerful. I mean, seriously, who comes to G Jesus to be the same the rest of their life? Really? We come to Jesus to be changed. So let Him change us, alright? So, God blesses those um, who next verse God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy so Jesus put God's will over his own will by pursuing righteousness and then Jesus put <coughs> God's mercy over human mercy I live in a world that thinks it's very merciful a while ago I said I live in a world that really likes its rights but I, I'm telling you I live in a world now I, I, it blows my mind that human beings can think that they are more merciful than God it's true. Have you ever had someone accuse God in your presence of being cruel or judgmental or wrathful or angry or disconnected? They don't know Him. That's how they would make such accusations. Okay? And I, you know, I have this thing called social media. I have a couple that I look at about nah, once or twice a month is too often, but still, you know, I look at it every so often. And I see people who are so merciful who want blood over the stupidest things. Want people, they just, human mercy 
She ain't what she used to be, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure she ever was anything, but the point is, God is merciful. God is merciful. I tell you what, if you're going to stand before a judge, you want a fair one. Although I don't want God to be fair. I want God to overlook all the stuff that I've done wrong so that I'm good to go. But I'm going to tell you what, if you're ever going to be judged, and you are, <laughs> Hebrews 9, you're going to be judged by a God who knows everything about you. Everything. Every little inner working of your mind. The stuff you've never told anybody. He knows all the influences that have been contributed to your life. All the insults that have come against you. He knows every wound, every fragile place. He knows it all. That's the judge of the universe. But that judge of every human being that ever has or will live is also merciful. He is a God of mercy, and that's why I'm alive today. It's why we have the opportunity of salvation and hope, because God is merciful. In fact, the writer of Lamentations, Jeremiah, as he's standing over a devastated Jerusalem with the worst fall story you could come up with, standing there ruined, cries out about the Lord's mercies being new every day. That's so impacted me lately that in our morning prayer times that Christian and I have, I've been thanking God for the newly minted mercy for today. Isn't that awesome? Every day, new mercy's coming out just for that day. New mercy, new grace, because God is merciful, and God has had mercy on me, and God has had mercy on you. God has had mercy on you. And Jesus said, live with mercy. Are we doing that? Because that's the way. The way is mercy. Every person I know, including myself, has a list somewhere in their head that they don't want to ever write, out, write down for fear of incrimination of people that owe them something. Respect, an apology, prison, <clears throat> beheading. And, and what we'll do is we have those enemies in our hearts. We'll have those enemies and, soon, and, and every now and then we'll find someone that we can, we can begin to share those wounds with. And, it, and we'll begin to try and find people to come alongside of us to, to attack our enemies. But that's not the way. That's not how this is done. That's not how Jesus lived. Jesus declared mercy. As they're nailing Him to a cross, He's asking God to forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. When you came to God for salvation, when you realized your situation, if you're a Christian in this room and placed your faith in Jesus, when you came to that, Jesus stood there as your advocate and, and, and took all those sins and declared to the Father, they're all paid for, and He gave you mercy. And our task is to live with mercy toward each other, toward everybody. You know God loves them all, right? Loves them all. Loves every breathing human being on the planet. The ones that aren't breathing yet, that are on their way. The ones who've died. Loves them 
Oh, every, you will never look in the face of a human being that God does not desperately and radically love. And so because and out of that love, he expresses mercy. And Jesus is the advocate for that person. I don't care who they are. I don't care how bad they've hurt you. I don't care how bad they've hurt the world. Jesus is an advocate for that person that they might know forgiveness and might experience mercy. Now, there is an accuser out there. There is an accuser. There is someone who's always quick to point a finger at you and point out your faults and draw God to your failures. There is an accuser standing up and and accusing every soul on the planet every chance he gets. Who are you going to side with? Are you going to side with the advocate or the accuser? You see, because the way of Jesus puts you on the side of the advocate. And now we advocate for people. We plead with them as ambassadors of the kingdom. Come back to God. We don't declare them condemned. Jesus didn't even declare them condemned. And he's the Lord and Savior. He said, I didn't come to condemn anyone. I came to save them. And that is our task as ambassadors of a new kingdom. We are saviors. We are acting as our Savior on this earth to bring people back to God. So this is what it means to live with mercy. I realize this is going to be a challenging year for Christians. And if I could speak as a pastor and since you didn't say yes or no, I'm going to do it anyway. Guys, the church needs to stop being afraid. We need to stop being afraid. I am on social media. I see the fear. And it doesn't come from God. Show me a verse where God gives us a spirit of fear. Not there, man. Stop being, this is for myself, stop being a man or woman of fact. And start being a man or woman of faith. Start believing that God can change things. And I believe, I know everyone's called to their own task, and I commend you in it. Do everything you do to the glory of Christ and for His honor. But I believe if you really want to change a country, you change the hearts of the people who are in it. And eventually the leaders of it will reflect those people because the leaders we have now reflect these people. Amen? I don't like that, Michael. Let us learn to live with mercy. Mercy. Jesus did. He blesses those who are merciful for this to be shown mercy. And then God blesses those whose hearts are pure for they will see God. Jesus' way was God-focused, not me-focused. God-focused, not me-focused. What does that mean? Jesus kind of broke this down in another passage, Matthew 12. I'll read it to you. It's on the screen. It says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. Okay. So apparently every one of us has a treasure chest in us. You know? A pirate's booty, if you will. So no moment for levity, Michael. Yeah, there's always a moment for levity. A treasure chest that's in you. Now... What's in the chest? What's in the treasure chest? Well, that's determined by what you put in the treasure chest, okay? And that's what Jesus is pointing out. We have a treasure. It's our heart. Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. Jesus told his disciples and the Pharisees at one time that it's not the things that you touch or that 
on the outside that make you unclean, but it's the things that come out of your heart. So how do we get a good treasure and how do you get an evil treasure or a dark treasure? Well, Jesus made it clear to the rich young ruler that there's only one who's good and that is God. Now back to the beatitude. Blessed are those whose hearts are pure. What is pure? Pure is the power and nature of a thing to be one thing. Pure water is only water. Pure gold, only gold. Not contaminated by things. It's one thing. So Jesus says, here's this treasure. If you want a good treasure, it's got to be filled with good things. There's only one good thing, and that is God. Okay? What's an evil treasure? Well, an evil treasure is when we, is anything that's not God. James says this in James 1. Your loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they're unstable in everything they do. One translation says that they're double-minded, that there are people who want the world and they want God. It's that God is a crutch mentality, all right? I want to live in the world, but I need God to help me get through the world. And that's not the plan. For you are dead with Christ, is what Galatians 2 teaches us. God's plan isn't to help you get along in the world. God's plan is to actually remove you from it and empower you to live from a different place. Another, another sermon. So I'll back out of that just for a sec, okay? My, my point is simply this. Our hearts need to be God-focused. This is the new way. More God. More God. That's what I need. That's what you need more. The great thing about God is He's infinite. There's always more. I don't care how far you've been with Him, there's so much farther to go. My dad used to always say, son, study the Bible. You'll study your whole life and never scratch the surface. And I'm here to tell you, dad was right. I've been studying a long time and every time I read it, God takes it newer and deeper and more profound. Every teacher I listen to sees something I didn't see. And so, guys, do you want more God? Or do you want just enough? And what is that? Can you even do that? Because it's a pure heart that sees God. You start focusing your heart and mind on God, who He is, His character, His person, what He's doing in your life, you'll see God at work in your life. I mean, this verse means a lot more than that, but it certainly means that you'll begin to see what God's doing. Begin to catch on to how He's working in your life. So, I'm going to move on to verse 9 because I'm running out of time. Every week I run out of time. It's so weird. Matthew 5, 9. God blesses those who work for peace. For they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So, I said that in the Beatitudes, Jesus teaches us how He thought. Jesus teaches us how He lived. This last point is that Jesus teaches us how He helped, but I want to change my outline. Can I do that? Is that okay? Sure. Thanks, Michael. Do it. The way Jesus won. The way Jesus won. You see, Jesus was a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. So you got to understand, Jesus Christ, when He was on earth, He was installing a kingdom that defied every kingdom that was on earth at the time, which is why earthly kingdoms struggle with Christians. Because Christians put their God above any earthly king, 
president or ruler, okay? They put the laws and rules of the kingdom above any earthly law or rule that is offensive to earthly governments, always has been, always will be, no way around that. Jesus was on the earth in the middle of a, a, an Israeli kingdom teaching a new kingdom that defied their beliefs, and so they hated him for it. In the midst of the Israeli kingdom, they were wrapped around and surrounded by the Roman kingdom, which also Jesus taught ideas that defied their rule and government. And so Jesus was not a peacekeeper. He was not trying to keep things chill. Jesus was stepping into it, raising up a new kingdom in the midst of two kingdoms in which he lived. And so he was challenging all of those ideas. And what was the challenge? Well, he was challenging them to come back to God. He was challenging them with peace. Now, I contend that Jesus Christ had so much peace within him that he enforced it all around him. That he could walk into a situation that had been disrupted by the chaos of disease, sickness, and death. He could enforce his peace and bam, there would be cures. He could be out on, an, on a sea that was in the chaos of a storm that God did not send. A storm that was just the, the, the ramifications of living in this kingdom of darkness. And he would have so much peace within him that he could stand up and say to the storm, Peace, be still, and the storm would have to calm down. He could stand in the chaos of death itself and be murdered by it and then rise again, thereby declaring peace and overwhelming death with peace. That's the power of Jesus Christ. That's how he made peace. He enforced it. He brought it into his world. And that is also how we will win. We will bring peace into our world. We are trying to make peace between people and God. So Jesus is the first peacemaker. And we learn from him how to bring peace and have peace within ourselves. And so that's our job, to bring peace in the world. That's how we will win. But that's not all he did. There was something else he did he talked about. <laughs> you know, before... No, I'm going to go right on. Sorry, excuse me. Sometimes I have brain cramps. It's all right. I don't have much of a brain to cramp, so it's no biggie. God blesses... I'll jump right into the persecution part. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So Jesus made peace, but then he also blessed the persecuted. Now, this is the part of the Beatitudes that we wish weren't there. The world and the kingdom of darkness is never going to love the Jesus that's in them. It's not going to happen. Those who are being saved will. 1 Corinthians 1.18 Those who are turning to God and realize the hopelessness of this situation, they will love the Jesus that's in you. But for the most part, the world isn't going to like it. Jesus Christ was persecuted. As soon as He came out of that river and began and went through the temptation and began to tell the world the good news of the kingdom, the persecution began, and it didn't just begin, it began, it pursued him. Because that's what the word persecution means. It means to pursue, to follow with persecution. Ask Paul. Paul knew all about it. Paul was a persecutor himself, and he followed and chased down the followers of the way. Then he became a Christian, and then he was chased and pursued by persecution the rest of his life. This is Christianity, guys. This is what it is. And we need to understand that. And it's great that we have laws that protect us and enable us to say things and proclaim Jesus Christ and to come together and worship. 
But I have worked in corporate America, and I'm here to tell you, freedom of speech doesn't actually exist there. You, you can't just come out and proclaim Jesus Christ any old way you want to. You need to be there. You need to be Jesus in that environment. I'm not trying to get you fired or any of those things, but you need to understand the God of money will never love the God of sacrifice. will never love the Jesus in you. Now, I'd like to speak for a second to a new generation. A generation not of age. You may be young, but that's not, who, that's not what I mean by a new generation. I believe God is raising up a generation of Christians who believe. Who believe in God and believe God to do. That's the generation I'm speaking to, and it isn't a generation of age. It's a generation that's being born again in its faith. To you, I want to say, the gospel is supposed to go and must go to the ends of the earth. And it doesn't matter how illegal that is to accomplish. It doesn't matter that there are nations on the earth that will kill you to do that. God calls a generation to rise up in the face of all fear and all persecution and proclaim the gospel anyway. That's who I'm talking to. You may not even have the freedoms we enjoy in this country for very much longer. Who knows? Things can happen quickly. History teaches us things can happen quickly. But it doesn't matter. Christianity was born in a persecution environment. It was against the law to be a Christian from the very beginning. And I contend that Christianity thrives in persecution. That we are best from the fringes working our way into a society rather than from the center of it working our way out. And so I'm here to tell you, young believer, new believer, or believer waking up to a whole new level. Blessed are the persecuted. For they will inherit the whole earth. Is that what it says? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Guys, the job is big. The task daunting. But the way is clear. Always has been. Always will be. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank You for the opportunity to share the way. I pray, Lord, that it challenges. I pray that it's sobering. But I also pray that it's hopeful. I pray, Lord, that it will come against the hearts in this room not the hearts, but the ideas, the strongholds that somehow believe that this world will still come through. I pray that those ideas can be released and that we will find Jesus Christ and hope. We'll find comfort. We'll find mercy and righteousness. And we'll walk in those things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.